Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. This is Dischem Medical Monday, and I'm Richard Sutton, author and performance coach. And today, I've decided to continue along the lines and the theme of resilience, and that's following last week's conversation. Now, the reason why we have to all develop this thing, this thing called resilience, is because we have been subjected to immeasurable complexity and immeasurable challenge of the last several years. It's not just COVID-19, it's the fourth industrial revolution and significant climate change and the war in Ukraine now and civil unrest just last year and copious challenges on a personal level. And fundamentally, this demands that we be able to navigate this new world with more skills and more tools and more resources. And in the last session, which I already feel is important to just do a brief recap on, I discussed that the framework of resilience is more expansive than we previously understood. Historically, resilience was believed to be mental toughness and grit and perseverance and they're incredible skills um, that, that I can uh, testify to. Uh, I've leveraged off that as, as much as I can in, in my youth. But fundamentally, what the research shows in the last five years specifically, is that resilience is bigger than that. It's far bigger than that. Fundamentally, resilience is the ability to adapt to stress, challenges, change, and adversity on a mental, physical, and emotional level. And yes, there are 16 other aspects that tie into this 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 framework, but that is resilient at its core. Now, there's been some incredible insights into resilience from the perspective of Olympic champions, those individuals who every time they go to the Olympics, they're able to come back with a medal. And these insights started, this were published initially in 2012, and that just started a run of, of further research into this understanding in order for us to gain these insights and apply to our own lives. Now, the reason why this is so significant, most of us will be thinking right now, like, what do I have in common with, with an athlete, is that their reality is an extreme version of ours since COVID-19. They experience constant fatigue and ongoing pain and sense of failure and fragmented relationships and isolation and politics and loneliness and, and everything that we, we have begun to experience in this new reality that we live in now. And the fundamental distinction between them and us at the end of the day is that we didn't choose the challenge that we confronted with. We didn't choose the uncertainty. We didn't choose the change, the scale and the nature and the magnitude of change that we're facing right now. Yet, Olympic champions did. And it's only one population. I think there's one of two populations, actually, um, elite military units and Olympic athletes that have chosen a life of adversity and we can learn so much from him. And there were two fundamental lessons that we took from the study in the last session. And after the break, I'll be talking about those two fundamental lessons. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care.
I'm Richard Sutton, author and performance coach, and this morning I'm talking about resilience. Before I go into today's journey, and it's an incredible journey, I want to just recap on last week's conversation and what we can learn, <laughs> what we can learn from Olympic champions. And one of the first big messages in this powerful study that took 12 of the best Olympians over decades from different sports, team sports, individual sports, different genders, different ages, different ranges, everything was different. And fundamentally looking at those central factors that determine success in adversity, in challenge, in, in failures, in setbacks, in complexity, what were those fundamental things? And they, they discovered that there were eight behavioral and psychological traits and the first two were fundamental, fundamental to the ability to navigate a complex and difficult reality. The first being, and probably the most powerful, is that every time an Olympic champion is confronted with stress, challenge, failure, hurt, setbacks, disappointments, obstacles, they see that not as something that is obstructive in their life, but rather an opportunity, an opportunity to develop their skill set, to develop themselves, to advance themselves in their chosen endeavors. And for us to take this message and inculcate it into our lives, we have to ask ourselves four fundamental questions. And those four fundamental questions include, what can I learn from this challenge? What can I learn from this setback? The second question is, could there be positive outcomes in the future? I might not be able to see it now. I might not understand it now. But could something potentially positive come from this hurdle? The third question we need to ask ourselves is, how has this challenge enhanced me? And every difficulty at the end, at the, in the middle, sometimes in the beginning, enhances us. We grow emotionally, physically, mentally. We move forward. And we have to ask ourselves that question. How has it enhanced me? But the big question that we grapple with and we have to repeatedly ask ourselves is could there be a deeper meaning behind the event and sometimes we're so overwhelmed by pain and hurt and frustration and confusion that we forget this question and for us to grow in adversity those four questions have to become ingrained and very intrinsic to our very nature but there was a second lesson or second behavioral lesson from these olympic champions and it centered around this ability to control oneself and understand oneself better. And if I were to define it as one word, it's metacognition. It's a complex word. But, but in real terms, it's just self-control and self-awareness. And the more we understand ourselves, the more we're able to control ourselves, the more we can shape our realities in the future. We can't change the past. We can't control many external events that happen to us. But we can shape the narrative going forward. But this is contingent on us being able to control the way we feel about a given situation or event. 
at the same time control the way we think and most importantly control the way we act so when we face a challenge or we face something that's threatening or unsettling or upsetting we'll have an in a natural a gut reaction this is how i feel about the event this is how i feel about the person this is how i feel about the situation this is what i'm thinking right now and then we react accordingly but if we can develop the discipline and it's a discipline <laughs> and i think if you're getting it right two out of ten times it's amazing if we can develop this discipline to check ourselves when we get into that difficult and frustrating situation how am I feeling right now? I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling resentful. I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling sad, whatever. And then ask ourselves this fundamental question. How do I want to feel right now? What is the best feeling for this situation in order to secure a successful outcome? At the same time, we need to ask ourselves, how do I need to think? I know how I'm thinking. I'm thinking negatively. I'm catastrophizing. I'm, I'm thinking Thoughts that I don't want to think, but how do I need to think in order to be successful going forward? And it's a big question we need to ask ourselves. And then lastly, is how should I act? Because our default is a conditioned response. We act according to the way we feel. But if we can slow it down and shift the way we feel, shift the way we think, and control the way we act, we shape our reality. And there are tools that can enable this. The first tool is a self-dialogue. Have a conversation with yourself. And the, the crazy thing is, is that if you look at professional sportsmen, they're masters of self-dialogue. In fact, Novak Djokovic is probably the most recognized self-dialogue dialoguer in the sport of tennis. And there's been statisticians in the U.S. who, who have looked at when Novak Djokovic is down in a match and he goes through these conversations, he starts muttering, he starts talking, he goes to the bathroom, he starts talking, he comes back, he starts talking. Again, it's, he's not talking to anyone else other than himself. And 83% of the time, he wins the match. 83% of the time. And he's been interviewed many times asking him what he says to himself. And his response is that he reminds himself that he's worked hard for this, he's prepared for this, believe in yourself, have confidence, don't give up, keep trying, keep working. Don't forget the occasion. And what, what do we tend to do in those situations, those difficult situations? We become our own worst enemy. Our dialogue is negative. Our, dog, our dialogue is, is almost more destructive than the circumstances that we're confronted with. So the first step in shaping this metacognition is, is to shift what we say to ourselves. The second step is an openness an openness to a new reality. Any challenge comes with almost a prerequisite that we're going to be in a new space and a new reality. Sometimes the transition is very, very painful, very hard, very frustrating. Sometimes it builds anger and resentment. And these are emotions that, that do appear and they come and they go. But the one thing that COVID taught us is that a new reality is imminent and we have to be open to it. And if you go cast your mind back to the beginning of COVID, we saw a large group of individuals saying that when COVID's over, we're going to go back to normal. About a year later, we're realizing that we're not going back to normal and we're adjusting. And everyone's working remotely and getting into working remotely. And everyone's disconnected from other people and getting, getting used to being very insular and very family-orientated. And now we've just moved out of this kind of COVID 
this COVID grip is the only way I can really phrase it, term it. But are we adapting to the new reality? Many of us are not. We're trying to, we're trying to stay in our homes and we're still behaving in this insular way. But the reality has changed yet again. And we have to be open to a new reality. Now, here's, here's the crazy thing is that openness is an incredible trait that is, is far bigger than just being accepting of something new in your life. Openness is the fundamental basis of creativity. And creativity is the fundamental basis of success in today's era. With machines and automation taking more jobs than you can ever begin to imagine. I think right now at this point in the world, 50% of human jobs have been replaced by machines and automation. And that was up on, I think it was 70% two years ago or 30% or 35% two years ago. Things are changing, and the only thing that really differentiates us is creativity and innovation, and openness is that fundamental state that allows us to be able to express ourselves on this level. But there were a couple of other things that were also important in terms of metacognition, which I'm going to explore after the break before I get into some of the powerful psychological drivers. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. I'm Richard Sutton, author and performance coach, and I'm talking resilience. And before I get into this week's message, I'm just exploring some of the content that I spoke about last Monday. So just, again, revisiting this metacognition, this ability to control oneself and just to have this incredible self-awareness. There were skills that can enable this process, and this process is central to our ability to adapt to a difficult and challenging future and be able to get up off the floor after being knocked down not once but thousands of times. So we have these other skills uh, that are also fundamental to metacognition and, and one of these skills is the ability to set goals, set goals for ourselves. And if you think at every, well, think back and, and reflect on any time you've been in a difficult situation or a crisis, you think about the goals that you've had for your life and what happened to those goals, they disappeared. Our goal is to survive the crisis often. But for us, for human beings to be fulfilled, to be happy, to be content in life, and really at peace in life, one thing is important. And that one thing is that we move forward. We grow, we evolve, we grow and evolve on a mental level, spiritual level, physical level, emotional level. We have to keep moving. And in order to keep moving, we have to have goals, not just those lofty long-term goals. You know, one day I want to move to Israel, one day I want to move here, one day I want to do this in 40 years time. We can't attach to that kind of goal. We need those weekly goals. This week I want to achieve this. This month I want to achieve that. And have I done it? Is someone holding me accountable? Am I holding myself accountable? And goal orientation is critical. And the one thing we lost in COVID was goal orientation. It was just about survival. Just get through this week. Just get through this day. Just get through this month. And if there's one message that I want to put across is that we have to find those goals again those goals that are important to us so that we can be moving forward, so that we do have that spark ignited and that passion and that purpose. But metacognition also requires one additional factor, and that factor is the ability to shut down. And when we get into a crisis and we get into a difficult situation in life, 
We go into this hypervigilant mode. Like we can't rest until we've solved the problem. We can't rest until we've sent that document out. We can't rest until we've sent out that proposal. We can't rest until. And invariably, this type of behavior is just push, 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 break, fall over. We cannot sustain it. Fundamentally, it drives burnout. And if, if you look at burnout, it's a, a very interesting set. Burnout is a combination of two things. It is ambition, which is fundamentally a good thing, but it could come from a bad place, with a lack of self-care. And when we don't shut down, we don't regulate our stress, we don't take those moments to spend with our kids and our family, we don't take those moments away from our phones, we don't take those moments in nature, we don't take those moments to do the things that we love. If we don't take those moments, we can't actualize our fullest potential, especially in adversity, especially in crisis. And that's where the message really kind of ended from the last session, which is where we begin our journey today. And this is exploring that study again that, that I brought up last week, Monday, on the 12 Olympic champions and the key drivers. The, differenti the differentiation between the two sessions is fundamentally that last week was about the core behaviors. Today is about kind of the psychological strategies that Olympic champions employ in order to overcome their setbacks and their adversity, which they experience in ways that we can't begin to imagine. Now, the first and probably one of the most important psychological skills and understanding that Olympic champions have is the value of support. We, we certainly understood the value of support during the COVID period or lack thereof. But there's one particular scene at the Tokyo Olympics that really embodies this concept. This concept of how important support is for us in our lives. So it was one of the most interesting Olympics where just some incredible things were happening. And there was a scene, I was watching the high jump and it was fiercely contested. I think it was probably the most contested high jump in the history of high jumping. And it took about two and a half hours. And not really, you know, I don't watch a lot of high jump, but it was captivating. And, and it was really a two-horse race. And once the, the event is completed and the champion announced, you see the scene, the scene of an Italian athlete, John Marco Timbiri, and he hears that he's just won the high jump, puts his hands over his face, starts screaming, like actually disturbing, and collapses on the floor, and he rolls around, and he rolls around, and he's crying, and he gets up for a moment, and he, he screams again, and he collapses on the floor, and he rolls, and he rolls, and he rolls, and I'm, I'm, you know, you can't not be touched by this moment, this event, it's the most incredible thing, I mean, I was, I was feeling it, you, know, you can't, even if you've got the heart of a reptile, you can feel this, and, and I'm thinking, this, this is an amazing scene, you know, like, you just want to bottle the scene, and this continues, he gets up, falls down, cries, gets up, falls down, cries, cameras go around, and gets up, falls, Two, I'm, not, I'm not even joking, Two hours later, this thing is going on. I'm thinking like, like I'm this, this is, I mean, I, I'm, all for, I'm all for these emotional moments, but this, come on, you know, it's like maybe this is pushing it just a little bit too far. But what most people didn't realize, including myself, 
is that five years before this moment where Jean-Marco Tamberi was lying on the ground at the Olympic Games as a gold medalist, he was lying on the ground at another track and field meet that was being held four weeks before the Rio Olympics. And he was also in tears. He was also wailing, but not because he was holding a gold medal or had just won a gold medal, but rather because he had missed the jump. And in missing the jump, he had ruptured ligaments. He had torn his capsule. And he was in the best jumping form of his life. Uh, he won this particular high jump at the Tokyo Olympics at 2 meters 37. And when he was competing four weeks before the Rio Olympics, he was jumping routinely 2 meters 39. And he was attempting to break for 2 meters 40, which only 11 people have ever done. And he's screaming. I mean, it's, I actually went to, to YouTube this, and it was, like, disturbing to watch how, what, what happened. And they show his shoe, and his shoe had ruptured. Never seen a shoe rupture. It took five people to carry him off, and he goes into an emergency surgery. Now, as a sportsman, it's tough enough to make the decision to have an elective surgery. You choose your surgeon, you choose your country, you choose your hospital, you choose everything. It's calculated, it's structured, and you know what the outcome is going to be. He's in a foreign city. He has no choice but immediately to have surgery. And the doctor tells him, Jean-Marco, this is it. End of the road. Jumping is over. This is all he's worked for his entire life. Imagine everything you've worked for. Every breath you've taken has been in one direction, and that direction in an instant has been removed from you, removed from your life. And he doesn't believe that this is the reality he's going to be facing and he fights and he fights and he, he's got the grit and he's got the perseverance and he goes through rehab he goes through physio and he he's worth the best of the best in the world and he he works and the work ethic was just phenomenal and incredibly incredibly one year later he finds his way back on the track so now, you know, he's got these expectations of himself and he's competing or he's trying to compete, but it's an absolute disaster. The foot is so central to jumping and confidence is so central to jumping and both have been compromised. So what he, he starts to see is a situation where he's unable to clear his opening height, just can't clear that height. And it's, it's getting humiliating from one of the best jumpers in the world to a jumper who can't even qualify for an event. And after two or three events, he, he just has this emotional breakdown, realizing that maybe that doctor was right. Maybe that's the end of the road. And he goes back to the hotel, and there's an official athlete's hotel. He locks himself in the room. Everyone's really concerned. He's a very emotional individual. And they're trying to get him out and, and knock, and he's bolted the door, and, and everyone just kind of leaves him alone that night. The next morning, the same thing. And now everyone, the, the emotional alarm has been raised, and he's just totally non-responsive. And uh, nothing worked. So all of a sudden, at the door, there's this, like, this powerful like, kind of bellowing knock. And it just repeated. It's like this like incredibly like reverberating sound. And with it is is this shouting gimbo, 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 and knocking this going. And it's a knock and a gimbo, knock and a gimbo. 
And eventually he opens the door. He's actually going absolutely insane. I mean, this is going to drive him mad. And he lets this individual in. And the individual walks in and John Marker collapses to the ground in tears. His career's over, his dream is over, everything he's worked for. He's, he's given up education, he's given up everything in his life for this and it's over. He's realized finally that it's over. And this individual picks him up off the floor, sits him down and says, John Marker, it's only been a year. Give yourself time. And John Marker kind of is, is, is still in that emotional state and this individual is able to calm him down. He said, look, you're not giving up. You're not leaving athletics. I'm going to be there at every practice. I'm going to be there every step of the way. And was so convincing that John Marco agrees that he's back. He's back. He's not giving up. He's going to continue to try. Now, you would think that this individual... He's a family member, father, parents, sibling, cousin, someone who, who really has known him his whole life. The crazy thing about the story is this individual was his arch rival. These two hardly ever spoke. His arch rival, Mutaz Bashim. So Jean-Marco, motivated by this, they become training partners and... Jean-Marco, within months, is back to his form. Like, unbelievable form. All through this kind of support that he re received from, from Mutaz Bashim. And then in a twist of fate, a twist of fate, one year later, the same incident happened to Bashim. The same injury, the same trauma, the same situation. At the peak of his career, and he's one of the best jumpers in history, he has this foot. It's, it's a freak accident. And who's sitting at his bed? Who's there through the surgery? Who's there through the rehab? Jean-Marco. Every step of the way. So, eventually both athletes are back to their peak form. Now they're training partners. They're best of friends. They do everything together. And it's these two athletes that are competing in the final of the Tokyo Olympics. Now, they left every single other athlete in their wake. It was just them who had both achieved 2 meters 37. There were no more jumps left to do. They were both at equal heights. And they get confronted with the decision, is one of us going for gold or are we going to declare a draw? And both these athletes did not want to see the other athlete lose. They both had confidence in their ability. They both could definitely jump more than 2 meters 37. But the thought of seeing their friend, their partner, lose was unimaginable. So they decided to share the gold. And this hasn't happened since 1912. And it was such an impactful, impactful scenario that the Olympic motto that has stood forever, which is higher, faster, and stronger, was rewritten. In 2021, the Olympic motto became higher, faster, stronger, together because of this incredible act of support and friendship. Now, this is what the study showed, the study on 12 Olympic champions, is that 
support underpins the stress resilience performance relationship. We cannot be successful in adversity, in a crisis, in a challenge without people. And this is why COVID was so challenging for all of us. Because now we get into the toughest point in recent human history and we are told to go to our houses, go to our rooms and not come out until this thing is passed. And we need support in order to get through these difficult events in our lives. But so often we attribute our success to personal characteristics or environmental conditions or work ethic or passion or discipline or tenacity or ambition or just good timing. But the reality is every success in our life, every success in our life stems from the people around us. And in my life, I can think back and I can recall two or three times where when I didn't believe in myself, someone believed in me. When I didn't have the skills to be working at a certain level, Someone forced me to upskill. In fact, it was, it's, it's quite crazy because I was making the transition from, I guess, South African sport to international sport. And there, there's a differentiation uh, in, in the world of tennis in, in many respects. We, we had good tennis players, but there's, you know, the top 15, the top 10 players. And it's a, it's a different, different level in terms of what the expectations from their team are. And uh, I was ambitious and I was motivated and I wanted to be at that level, but I just didn't believe I could be at that level. I had the skills or had the ability, had the capacity. I certainly didn't have the confidence. But there was a coach, a coach of players who saw something in me that I didn't see myself, who pushed me, who made me believe that I should be at that level and who, who backed me. And incredibly, because of his backing, I was able to move to this next level of, of professional tennis. And that was working with players in the top 15. And then about five, six years later, there's the next level. And the next level is working with players in the top five or top 10, which is vast, vastly different, especially in the top five, what's, what's expected of you. And again, I didn't, I didn't have the skill set. I didn't have the confidence. I was very intimidated by the environment. And I had a coach who backed me. And he, he, he believed I should be there. And he wasn't letting me get complacent. He wasn't letting me get into a comfort zone. He pushed me and he made me stretch myself. And I'm grateful to him because I did stretch myself. And I was, was able to work in that environment for, for many decades worked with seven tennis players and number one in the world. But I would never have been as successful in the sport of tennis were it not for these two individuals who believed in me, who backed me, who removed the hurdles, removed the obstacles. And I think the message here is that support, support, support divines our life. Support is so fundamental to our success in adversity and through challenge and change and we kind of lose this kind of lose this appreciation of the role of people in our lives and if we want to be successful in this ever-changing reality in this ever-complex world we've got to re 
reconnect to people and, and find, find that essence again. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking about the next psychological skill that Olympic champions possess. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. I'm Richard Sutton, author and performance coach, and this morning I'm talking about resilience and the psychological and behavioral characteristics that we need to develop, the skills that we need to develop in order to navigate this complex world, this challenging world that we, we're facing. Now, the next core psychological skill, I would almost call it a superpower in many respects that the study was able to uncover, was that Olympic champions are able to focus and, and focus incredibly well. Now, that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Uh, when we see a professional athlete, any context, any level, any country, any sport, they can focus. I mean, you, you see that all the time. But the study is not alluding to that type of focus. It's alluding to a specific targeted focus. Now, when we get into a crisis, when we get into a difficult situation, when we're in pain, when we're hurting, we tend to focus on the things that we shouldn't. If we're going through a challenging time in our business, we focus on the other businesses and how they're doing so well and what are they doing that we're not doing. And it's, it's not fair and the circumstances are... are are not, not right in, in our eyes. And we fixate. We fixate. Our, our focus becomes so skewed, but very targeted and very, <laughs> and very intense, but misdirected, misguided. Now, for an Olympic champion who's injured or having a setback, successive failures or lost a, a parent, should they focus on the failure? Should they focus on the setback? Should they focus on the pain or the grief that they're going through? Is it going to be able to move them forward in the direction that they need to go on? Of course, there needs to be a reflection and an acknowledgement. You don't want to dismiss what, what's happening in your life and acknowledge it and grieve if need be. But your focus has to be on your journey, your process. And not the external world. Many, many factors of which you cannot control. So Olympic champions have this incredible ability. In that when life is difficult. And when they feel that all is lost. And the sense of failure. They're able to consolidate their thoughts. Not get distracted by what's happening on in the world around them, what other people are doing, and just concentrate on their journey, their steps, what they need to do in order to be successful. Very much centered around process. And this, this really reminds me of a situation I was exposed to about 18 years ago, 16, 18 years ago. I was part of the South African Davis Cup team 
And my role was fundamentally to look after the physical and emotional and psychological well-being and just augment performance. That was my role. And I had to basically control a lot of different variables. And we had a senior team, very talented senior team, and we had an up-and-coming junior squad. And the senior team had incredible players. I mean, at the time, we had Wayne Ferreira was still playing, and we had um, a couple of other players who were in the top 15, a lot of good doubles players specifically. And it was a great group. It was such a, a great dynamic. You know, it was camaraderie and everyone was motivated and we really enjoyed the training camps we really enjoyed our time together and we're trying to build this new generation and within this new generation there were so many talented players like unbelievable i mean everyone was saying that our oh, the current generation that was playing was was nothing compared to this new generation that's coming up in terms of skill and ability but a couple of years before that i started working with this young tennis player he had a couple of injuries that i was able to help him overcome and he was just one of these really diligent committed individuals and i just saw so much of myself in him and it really took him under my wing and his family didn't have the means to really get him involved in in this type of of protocol it's expensive um, it's a lot of time from from different practitioners and I decided to sponsor most of the process. I, I just took a shining to him and, and really liked him and his family as well and what they stood for. And as the years passed, uh, you know, he got better and better and he, he was always really good, um, but he just wasn't particularly well built for the sport. Um, he was a little bit too tall. He was a little bit clumsy, didn't have too many weapons. He was good at one or two things, but not good at everything. And he, he kind of didn't differentiate himself. But, but I really believed that he, he had greatness with him. And he believed it. His family believed it. Everyone, everyone in that inner circle believed in him. And I thought, look, I've got to use my position within the Davis Cup team to enhance and uplift his journey. And I asked a lot of the senior players, will you take him with you to, to practice sessions and on squads and, and for away trips? And will you hit with him and just kind of raise him up a little bit? And the senior guys, a couple of them were just unbelievable individuals. And they said, with our greatest of pleasure, which they did. But what was more important was the junior guys because the junior guys were pretty much around his age. And, and that was the level of competition that he had to be comfortable with. And I asked some of the junior guys, and they said, no, absolutely not. If we, if we practice with him, our game's going to go down. If he steps on the court, we step off. That's just how it's going to work. And I, I had to respect that. And the years passed, and the senior guys were incredibly nurturing and supportive and, and, and really remarkable in, in helping him with his journey. Junior guys evolved in their game, um, didn't have much to do with him past a certain point. And uh, what happened was the senior guys eventually retired. Uh, most of them kind of finished their careers. And it was time for the junior guys to take their place. And uh, as it turned out, not a single one of those junior players made it in professional tennis. They didn't win a match at challenger level. Not a single match. I think the best ranking was like four or 500 in the world. One of the individual, most of them sitting at around 1,000, 1,200 in the world. Didn't live up to their potential. Now we've got this individual, a little bit tall for the game, but 
so driven, so committed. And he had one fundamental principle, one fundamental philosophy. What can I do better tomorrow? What did I do right today? How can I improve? It was all about focusing on the things that he could control. And it would drive me absolutely insane, like really crazy, because at the end of every day, he would come to me and say, like, what did I do well today? And I'd, I'd say, oh, okay, well, this was pretty good. And he said, what did I do badly today? What can I improve on tomorrow? And I said, well, the same thing is you need to improve on last week and the week before and the week before and the month before and the month before. But I indulged it. It, it was a, a, very, a very special process, very special journey. And he did this since year after year, year after year. And something remarkable happened. And what happened, I will tell you after the break. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. I'm Richard Sutton, author and performance coach, and this morning I've been talking about resilience, learnings from some of the world's most successful athletes. And the narrative has been very focused on exactly that, <laughs> focus. So here we've got this individual who's been completely immersed in his journey of growth, his personal process. Not what's going on around him, not other players, not what they're doing, how they're doing it, where they're doing it, not getting caught into that. Just on what do I need to do to improve tomorrow? What are the steps that I need to take? Now, whilst all of these individuals disappeared, that wouldn't practice with him, that wouldn't step on the court with him, this individual grew and grew and exploded onto the tennis circuit. This individual became South Africa's most successful ever tennis player, reaching a career ranking high of five in the world. Being in the final of Wimbledon against Novak Djokovic, being in the final of the US Open against Rafa Nadal, all within a 12-month period, and winning several events. And for me, this is a powerful message for all of us, is that we can't control the external factors around us the complexity in the world. But we can control our process, our journey. And we need to remind ourselves constantly of what do we need to grow? What do we need to do? What do we need to do to improve tomorrow and move ourselves forward? Now we have this incredible learning when we start putting it together. And there's still more factors which we need to explore. But what we've seen is the power of support, the power of other people around us, their influence, how they shape our reality. And it's not just support from an emotional standpoint, it's support instrumentally, guidance, mentorship, practical assistance informational support, knowing what's going on around you through the help of others. We also see how important directed focus is, focusing on our process, our journey, the steps that are going to move us in the direction that we need to. 
And when we start unpacking this, and it's far from complete, there's many additional factors, but what we're starting to see is this incredible picture emerge. It's an incredible picture taking shape where this thing that we all need to be successful in the future that we're confronted with, resilience, is nothing more than a skill. It's not something you're born with, it's not something you inherit, it's not something some people have and some people don't. It's something that you can develop any time you make the decision to develop it. And it's supported principally by health practices that, that stands stands on its own but important in the development of the skill is the power to reframe your reality see the meaning that lies embedded deep within the challenge within the crisis there's always a gift in the pain i see it from my own life last night i was having a conversation with my wife and i had a, a really really tough childhood um, and to the to the extent that most of my family that I grew up with from who were outside of the peripheral circle said, I don't, we don't know how you got through it. And the conversation last night was that it was the biggest gift. It was the biggest gift I had ever been given. The ability to go through this, go through this experience for decades with vulnerabilities, genetic vulnerabilities, and come through on the other side. And know that you can shape your reality if you develop the fundamental skills that are required in order to do so. But sometimes we can only see its shape in hindsight. Sometimes at the time it's so overwhelming and so painful and so hurtful that we can't identify that gift that lies within. And sometimes we just need a bit of time. But if we are going to be resilient in the future, we have to understand that every challenge is there to make us grow. All the pain that we experience is going to change us for the better so we can change the world for the better. But it's contingent on a tremendous degree of self-awareness and self-control. We need to learn how to control our emotions, the way we think, and most importantly, the way we act, especially in a crisis. And then on top of that, if we bring in additional skills like focusing on our journey and our process and our steps and ignoring what's going on in the world around us and not fixating on the things that don't matter in life, we further move in the direction that we need to. And that direction is the ability to withstand anything that comes our way and be successful, not just survive, but be successful. And then lastly, the last message of today's session was that not some of our success is determined by others. We are only successful because of others. And when we start putting all these factors together with some additional skills, which we'll be talking about in a future session, you have this incredible ability to rewrite your story.